This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. A lot has changed since the morning after the U.S. presidential election. On Wednesday, millions of votes still needed to be counted in key states. Many of those mail-in ballots, the ballots Donald Trump has been calling fraudulent. Trump has been claiming victory over Joe Biden, promising to take issues around the election results to the U.S. Supreme Court, while spewing conspiracy theories and baseless accusations against the Democrats. To discuss developments up until Wednesday at midday, Libby Snymer was joined by an American panel of political experts. Matt Terrell is a Republican strategist and partner at Firehouse Strategies and the former chief of staff to Marco Rubio for president. Larry Haas is a former White House communications strategist who worked for Al Gore. He's currently a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. And Dr. Melissa Miller is a professor of political science at Bowling Green State University. We rather expected that it would take a few days to get the outcome, and that is what we are living right now. Larry Haas. The fact that it may take a few days didn't necessarily mean that in the end it wouldn't be a landslide. Uh, We always knew that Pennsylvania was not going to begin counting its mail ballots until uh, the voting was over. So we knew Pennsylvania was going to take a little while. We knew other states were going to be slow as well. To your question about the pollsters, uh, I think uh, all the mainstream pollsters in America right now are shaking their heads and wondering what in the world is going on. Because if you looked at the polls, it wasn't just the state-by-state polls, but it was also the question of demographics. Suburban women were going to flee Trump, and they may very well have. Uh, whites in general were going to flee Trump, and they, may, and they very well may have. Great turnout among African Americans. But in the end, is there something going on that they missed, or is it the case that Donald Trump just managed to bring out oodles of people in his own fairly narrow constituency? And I don't know that we know the answer to that question yet, but uh, yes, I think many people are quite surprised that in a race in which the national polls consistently showed a gap of about seven to eight points over the course of a year and growing gaps in, you know, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, uh, and some of these other key states that the fact that we have another nail biter on our hands is undoubtedly a big surprise to most people who have been watching this closely. Matt Tyrrell, uh, among other things, uh, I think there's evidence that uh, Trump did okay with Latino men and also with black men, which sounds very surprising to me. Sure. Well, we saw that President Trump was making inroads in key demographics. And just looking at the results from last night, we look at key states and key counties within those states, such as Florida, for example, Miami-Dade County. It appears that Vice President Biden underperformed there. So look, the bottom line is President Trump, for all the talk of this being a 
blowout election for Vice President Biden that many people did in fact predict, he was able to make inroads, able to pick up key swing states that he would have to win in order to get the 270 electoral votes. But at the end of the day, we're looking at this race likely going back to where it was four years ago in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Four years ago, we saw roughly less than 80,000 voters in those three states decide the outcome four years ago. In states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, maybe we'll decide this race uh, this time around as well. Uh, let me ask you another thing about Florida and the older demographic, because one of the things that we kept hearing and the older demographic, the senior vote is, is key in Florida, was that they would turn against Trump because of his handling of the coronavirus. But it, it doesn't look like that happened. How do you explain that? In addition to COVID-19 being key in this race and many arguing that that may potentially hurt President Trump among seniors, there are other key issues at play as well, such as jobs in the economy. And I believe that that key issue, which the president tends to perform better on with voters uh, in all different demographics, appear to play well for him in many of these key battleground states and very well could be uh, the issue that would get him across the finish line if he were to perform well in Pennsylvania and Michigan. So this race certainly was about COVID-19. That's a big issue, of course, as it should have been in this race. But right up next to it was jobs in the economy. And President Trump really worked in those final days to hammer home that messaging, a message that, that played well for him four years ago among many different demographics. And we'll see the final outcome here in the, the final states that matter. Republican strategist Matt Terrell, Larry Haas, senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, and Dr. Melissa Miller, political science professor at Bowling Green State University. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Two days after the U.S. presidential election, there was still no result. On Thursday, Joe Biden had the best shot at amassing the 270 electoral votes needed to win the White House. Also on Thursday, judges in both Georgia and Michigan dismissed lawsuits by the Trump campaign. Here in Canada, we've been just about as obsessed as our American neighbors about their election. But what does the outcome mean for our country? Dr. Jordan Ragusa is Associate Professor and Associate Chair in the Department of Political Science at the College of Charleston. Dr. Chris Cooper is Political Science Professor at Western Carolina University. And Bruce Heyman is former U.S. Ambassador to Canada and co-author of the best-selling memoir, The Art of Diplomacy. Bruce Heyman told Libby on Thursday, Joe Biden and Donald Trump could not be any different. Oh, my gosh. Uh, They're so diametrically different and opposed to, you know, each other in terms of approach and style. I think one is is very good for Canada, and that's Joe Biden. I Mm -hmm. traveled with Joe Biden to Vancouver. I traveled with him to Ottawa. I know him well personally. He swore me in. And I can tell you he's a honest, decent human being who values the Canada-U.S. relationship. I saw it firsthand. He had met with both Prime Minister Harper and Prime Minister Trudeau with me. And I'll tell you, I just think the tone and style and approach to the relationship will be incredibly different and very positive. And, assuming and, Joe Biden's president. And, and more regular and businesslike, obviously. Yeah, and respectful. And respectful. Let us um, move along to Dr. Cooper. Um, 
this seemed to be such a big surprise. Once again, the polls failed to pick it up. Uh, and it really is, I mean, it, it, the country seems to be almost, almost evenly divided. And it's a, a, a whole difference in approach. You know, what do you think when you're looking at this? Yeah, I mean, these are, they are diametrically opposed um, visions of America. And I think we are increasingly um, experiencing an America that is uh, sort of two growing camps, um, the Democrats, the Republicans, the liberals, the conservatives. And I, I've read a lot about this, um, uh, you know, maybe the polls getting it wrong. And I, I, although there's some smart people making those arguments, I actually haven't seen as many polling problems. I mean, it seemed to me that the polls are pretty clear about which states were going to be red states, which states were going to be blue states, which states were going to be battleground states. And as I stare at the map and the states that we're looking at right now, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, those are exactly the battleground states that we expected to be there. Um, the battleground states that have already been called were fairly close. So I, I'm not quite as negative on the polls as some of my colleagues are, um, partially because I think this vision of a divided America was here before this election and it will be here after the election, unfortunately. Okay, Dr. Ragusa, in terms of these legal challenges, I've been talking to a number of people about this, and most of the experts and academics that I've been talking to kind of aren't really taking the legal challenges seriously. Uh, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there are a number of, of smarter people than I that have weighed in on this. Uh, and the conventional wisdom is that um, not only is there no legal basis for challenging a lot of the results in the states, um, but a lot of the arguments of the Trump campaign just don't make sense. For example, um, just a few minutes ago, there was a press conference in Nevada where they're counting some votes. And um, supposed Trump campaign officials were saying that um, dead people were voting, um, that a lot of the votes were, quote unquote, illegitimate. But they weren't giving their name and they weren't giving any specific details. So um, are legal challenges possible? Could this end up being decided by the courts? Um, yes, it's possible. But um, most people who study this stuff don't think that that's very likely. Are you expecting that the longer it goes on, the, the, the more the likelihood of violence goes up? Violence is sort of unlikely to happen. But I suppose the longer it drags out, um, the more likely violence is to occur. I think one thing that does matter in the amount of time it takes to certify um, a winner in a lot of these states is that it really undercuts Democrats' efforts, you know, to say that this is a clear repudiation of Trump. It um, it hurts their honeymoon, you know, if potentially they have control of the Senate and they want to pass a bunch of legislation. And I does I do think that um, it increases the chances that Donald Trump immediately announces his candidacy in 2024, uh, and you know potentially we're um, campaigning for another four years um, after this election. Okay, Bruce Heyman, last word to you on that. I think this will be peacefully decided. I think the votes will be counted. I think there will be an announcement. I think all of this angst about what the president will do, the lawsuits will go by the wayside. He'll have to accept the result of whatever it is, and we will move on to a new administration in January. 
Bruce Heyman is former U.S. ambassador to Canada and co-author of the best-selling memoir, The Art of Diplomacy. Dr. Jordan Ragusa is associate professor and associate chair in the Department of Political Science at the College of Charleston. And Dr. Chris Cooper is political science professor at Western Carolina University. They were in conversation about the U.S. election with Libby on Thursday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, Ontario gets a color-coded system of restrictions to curb the spread of COVID-19. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of the week's best calls. John in Guelph phoned about his thoughts on pedestrian safety. In any collision involving pedestrians and drivers, there are two involved. One usually makes out a lot better than the other. So pedestrians can really help themselves by wearing highly visible clothing. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Pat in Toronto, who phoned about his preference for a year-round permanent time. We need to keep daylight saving. Otherwise, what's going to happen? It's going to be very light at 4 o'clock in the morning, and it's going to be getting dark before 9 o'clock at night in the summertime. And I, I lived in Indonesia, uh, where the difference between winter and summer, as, as far as light, is 15 minutes, um, and really missed the, the summer daylight. But I also took a cruise up the coast of Norway, and you get up to a place called North Cape, which is well up in the Arctic Circle. They are either gaining or losing 12 minutes of daylight per day. So at this time of year, they're losing an hour of light every five days. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The governing Ford PCs at Queen's Park say it's like going from an on-off switch to a dimmer. That's how Premier Ford is describing the new system that will determine shutdowns and restrictions amid the second COVID-19 wave. The province's 34 public health units will be placed in one of five categories according to their numbers. Those categories are green or prevent, yellow or protect, orange or restrict, 
red or control, and gray or lockdown. Under the orange category, indoor dining, movie theaters, and fitness gym operations will be able to reopen with certain restrictions. New York regions, along with Ottawa, moved to the orange zone yesterday, with Toronto set to go to that phase a week later. Dr. Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Donna Dewar is co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen near the Zoomerplex in Liberty Village. And Perry Tuccheroni is treasurer and member of the board of directors of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada. They joined Libby Snymer on Wednesday to discuss the new developments. While we think the changes are very, very positive, we're very excited about it. We've been, we, our whole goal the whole time, entire time, is to work with the government and with public health to provide a safe environment for people to exercise in the fitness clubs. Uh, we know there's no perfect method, but we want to be as safe as possible. And our data has really shown that, kind of combined with the data that the government released the other day, that we are quite safe. And like we have data showing that with over 20 million check-ins from across the country, since the reopen, the original reopening, uh, what we look at the, the event spreading to facilities, we're at 0.001% rate of spread. So we're not perfect, but we're working very hard to support Canadians, and we really like the steps the government has taken. Donna Dewar, uh, are you going to reopen for indoor dining, and do you think it's fair you have to wait another week? Well, uh, we're going to be open for outdoor dining because the weather is in our favor this weekend, which is wonderful. Um, well, we're looking forward to, to getting open on the 14th, you know, if that will be the case. And uh, we had hoped it would be sooner, but, you know, we obviously will adhere to public health guidelines in the, in the City of Toronto's request. I, I think that the, um, is it fair? I, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I mean, I, again, I like to see this, uh, these numbers and statistics that show, uh, that restaurant operations are, uh, are spreaders. And I don't think we have that information. I, um, I, I want to say that the restaurant operators of the city do a remarkable job keeping their staff and their patrons safe. Uh, and I think that this, initiative that the Ontario government has taken is is really a big step forward in navigating a safer path so we can coexist with the virus because that's the reality of it right now. And and I also think it will help us look forward with the statistics uh, that they're going to provide and the numbers so we, we can see down the road is there a possibility that we may have to close down or are we going to get to open up again? We were hoping to open up on the 7th, and now we're pushed back another week. Very hard to to run your business that way. And we now have Dr. Colin Furness on the line. What do you think of this uh, relaxing of restrictions and reopening in restaurants and gyms? Well, I'm obviously really concerned about it because we announced this after scaling back testing. We announced this on the same day that we hit a new record. And it feels like it's Mr. Trump's playbook. Reduce testing to reduce the size of the problem and then open everything up and say it's fine. And that's really concerning. Obviously, I understand the economic pain of having certain businesses closed. But I think the alternative that we're hurtling toward, which is what is going on in the U.S., is worse. Practical advice for people as we are entering this new phase. 
I think instead of trying to parse the province's conflicting guidelines, a very simple rule for safety is don't share air with anyone you don't live with unless you're wearing a mask. And if you never break that rule, you will be safe. Okay, and one other very quick uh, question. Uh, Teresa Tam gave us uh, different mask guidance, so you've got to get a filter for your mask. Is that necessary? So I was caught off guard by that. I haven't reviewed the evidence. I think it's. I think she she might be she, she may well be right, but I don't think that's actually where we need to focus our attention. I think we need to focus our attention on getting people to put a mask on at all, rather than telling people who already have one now they need a different one. I, I don't think that's actually helpful. We know that all super spreader events have no masks in common. We know that people wearing masks don't end up in super spreader events. So clearly, masks work. Maybe a three-ply one will work way better. I don't think that's the most important thing. Dr. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen in Liberty Village. And Perry Tuccioroni, treasurer and member of the board of directors of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Always the most outspoken in the Cotter family about her terrorist views, Zainab Cotter wants to come back to Canada. Zainab is the sister of Omar Cotter, who's been living quietly in Edmonton since he received a $10.5 million settlement from the Canadian government over the time he spent in Guantanamo Bay, where he was detained, accused of killing a U.S. soldier in Afghanistan when he was 15. Both Omar and Zainab Khadr are Canadian citizens, but Zainab is on the no-fly list and was blocked from boarding a plane to Canada last February. She's taking the government to court over this, claiming it violates her constitutional rights as a Canadian, and there's no reason to suspect she would actually ever engage in a terrorist act. Joining Libby to discuss, Mubin Sheikh, a former undercover operative for CSIS who helped bring down the Toronto 18 and is now teaching at Seneca. Immigration's lawyer, Giddy Mammon, and Zainab Cotter's lawyer, Barbara Jackman. The government's case goes back to what she said in 2001 to the associations that she has as a result of her dad taking taking the family to Pakistan when she was six years old and raising them in Pakistan. And, uh, you know, there's nothing in it, Libby, that nothing in the allegations that I could see that shows any kind of current concern about her. She's tried to, I mean, what she's been over the last number of years is a mom raising kids. They're all Canadian citizens. They're all in Canada and they've been separated from her because of this. Okay, uh, Giddy, what's your take on this? Well, you know, I, I take uh, constitutional rights very seriously, and the Charter is very, very clear. These are fundamental rights, and Canadian citizens have the right to enter and remain and live in Canada. Uh, that's what it says. And if you uh, want to infringe on those rights, uh, you know, uh, you can, but it has to be reasonable. And in this situation, we have someone who's not a very popular figure in the Canadian society. There's absolutely no question about that. But you can't hide the fact that she's a Canadian citizen. And if we're going to deny the right, uh, constitutional right to return to Canada, then there should be some sort of a hearing. She should have some sort of opportunity to see the allegations that are being made against her. We're a society that we uh, deny people rights and uh, we, we fine people, we imprison people on the basis of evidence. And often in these situations, the evidence is either hidden or vague, 
and it's like a jello on the wall. It's very hard to nail and to attack it properly because you're just not being given a proper disclosure. And I think that's why Barb uh, has no choice but to go to the federal court and try to get her hands on whatever evidence she can and try to attack it and get her clients off of that list. Mubin, what's your view of this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a legal issue at this point, so I would, all, of course, defer to my lawyer colleagues here. Um, remember, you know, being added to the no-fly list is, uh, well, one of the explanations that's been given or descriptions, at least in the U.S. anyway, is, you know, it's uh, you, you don't know how you got on it, and it's pretty much impossible to get off of it. And, and, you know, people are usually stuck in this space. I mean, even in Canada, we do have some issues when it comes to the no-fly list in general. You know, it could be from the U.S. side. Sometimes the U.S. will, you know, basically just tell us, put this person or this name on a list. Uh, and then there are, you know, there are problems with it, of course. I mean, in Canada anyway, we have, we've had even children put on that no-fly list. There apparently have been uh, very recent changes to prevent that. Um, There are cases of of children being put on, children who have uh, very common names. Uh, But anyway, yes, go ahead. So, so Yeah, I'm just trying to illustrate the, the backdrop where there is this space where you're not really the information, uh, the basis on which you're, a person is put on that list is not always uh, made available to uh, to the individual. And, of course, they have to make a legal challenge. So this is where we're at right now. But I would just add very quickly that I do believe it's more so an issue of uh, associations that she's obviously been having. Uh, there could be other issues. I mean, I remember way back in 2008, I think it was, um, the Globe and Mail at least reported uh, that a laptop was seized, uh, was Zainab Cutter's laptop, and the Canadian Canadian authorities have this laptop or, you know, were in possession of it. And there were some, you know, they say problematic files on that laptop. So, so while it is true that she hasn't committed a criminal offense, that is not necessarily the test by which Somebody has added to that. Mubin Sheikh, a former undercover operative for CSIS who helped bring down the Toronto 18 and is now teaching at Seneca's Honors Bachelor of Crime and Intelligence Analysis. Immigration lawyer Giddy Mammon and Barbara Jackman, Zainab Cotter's lawyer. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.